G'day everyone, it's Greg Ryan here and welcome to Rare and Resilient 1 in 5,000 podcast episode 12 and today we are incredibly fortunate to have one of the leading colorectal paediatric specialists in the world, Dr. Richard Wood, who is the chief of the Centre of Colorectal and Pelvic Reconstruction from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus. Welcome Richard. Thanks Greg, lovely to be here, thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, have a chat to us. And I'd like to sort of like get talk about uh, research projects and things that you've done research on with your colleagues as a response from uh, parents who would like a bit more sort of like layman's terms answers rather than the clinical side of it. And if you want to just give a bit of a description of what your role is at the CPR. Yeah, thanks, Greg. So, um, so I'm currently running the department here, and we have, a, you know, we've got a great group of people that work together to, on these patients uh, and and work with their families. And we've been very, very lucky in that the hospital has invested pretty heavily in the program. So we have about 40 people in the team, uh, and we've got a diverse group of three urologists, four colorectal surgeons, uh, two gynecologists six motility specialists from GI. So a really comprehensive group of physicians. We have nine nurse specialists or nurse practitioners as we call them here in the US that help with our outpatient care and inpatient care. So you know, we're very lucky to have a very comprehensive team. And I think that allows us to really help patients from a broad aspect. We have a psychologist on the team, we have child life experts. So really trying to provide comprehensive care I think one of the other big advantages, one of our colorectal surgeons, Dr. Ali Geisha, works both with us here at Children's and then she also works at the Ohio State Hospital. And I think that allows us to give um, care to children right from birth all the way through and transition them successfully into adulthood, which I think is a big source of stress for patients and families is what am I going to do when I phase out of pediatric care? I can vouch for that, especially. and. I'm, I'm a big advocate for the transition. And I know Ali's the first uh, surgeon that's qualified as a pediatric colorectal and adult in the US, isn't she? That's correct. And she has a gynecologist. She works with both uh, Dr. Hewitt, who works both sides both as well. And then uh, she also has a reconstructive urologist uh, that she works with at OSU. So um, I think we can offer that care, which you and I have discussed at multiple times is so valuable for, for people as they get older. And then, you know, with regard to the research, um, our previous surgeon in chief, Larry Moss, told me that one of the, when I started here, one of the main goals was to help the patients you never get to meet. And I think the only way you can really do that is by doing good quality research that allows you know, allows the care to be changed. And so that was a real challenge that we set up when we started here. And, you know, a couple of years ago in 2016, although I know that's five years ago now, it doesn't feel like it, but um, myself and a mate of mine, uh, John Sutcliffe, who works in Leeds in England. Yeah. So we did a project together. Uh, Jonathan spent a couple of weeks here in Columbus with me and we did a project looking at, um, we called it What Matters. And we did a bunch of comprehensive interviews with, with surgeons, healthcare providers, and patients and families. And basically, we found, this is 
patients with anorectal malformations. And basically we found that the patients and families were interested in these 10 things and the doctors were interested in these 10 things. And it turned out there were very few things on both lists. Oh, I can imagine. Um, and that was pretty sobering for us because we realized like, you know, the things that we worried about, like where you put the stitches in and which is the best operation, you know, that doesn't really feature very much with families. They're more interested in like, how's my child going to do? What are they going to do at school? What's their quality of life going to be? So that really became the impetus for the next, you know, three or four years worth of research, um, really trying to answer the questions that families are more interested in. And so dilations came out number one of all the things when we asked families, what's the most stressful part about having a child with anorectal malformation? Dilations was number one. Sorry, the stories in the books, in the book with the parents talking and the dilations is the one that gets all of them. And it's a very similar story about the stress. So what, what was the result of a recent uh, study you did with a, and a medical paper that got produced on dilation? Yeah, so uh, just to contextualize things slightly, we had been doing re-operations here for years without doing dilations on the patients because we'd always had a rule that once the patient was over one year of age, we wouldn't do any dilations. And so most re-operations happen over one. And so we just had a lot of experience of doing re-operations, not needing dilations. And so when this came out as the number one cause of stress, we thought, well, we got to do a trial and work out really, do you need to do dilations? So between 2017, 2019, we recruited 50 kids and offered half of them dilations and half of them didn't get dilations. And what we found was there wasn't a significant difference in the number of kids that developed strictures. There are patients who do develop strictures, but there's a very simple procedure that you can do, which we had written about you know, a couple of years before that, called a Heineke Miculitz anoplasty. It takes about 20 minutes and you can deal with um, skin level scarring uh, with that procedure, and it's about 95% effective and durable. Is that and so anesthetic? It's under general anesthetic, yeah, um, but it's, um, it's a quick procedure. It's a day case. You go home the same day. Generally, patients manage fine with regular pain relief like Motrin and Tylenol or uh, ibuprofen. Um, you call it. Um, and essentially, we found that that was effective for our redo patients that had developed skin level strictures. So that gave us the confidence that even if someone did get some skin level scarring, we could manage it. And that's what the trial showed, essentially, that, you know, there wasn't a significant difference between the two groups. And so I can tell you in my practice now, I offer it as parent choice. So if there's a child who's uh, who's got um, a colostomy, say a rectourethral fistula has got a colostomy, we'll, we'll do the PSAB, we'll check them out two to, two to three weeks post-op to make sure everything's healed well, and then basically say to the family, you can choose, there's two options, either we do dilations, or at the time of the colostomy closure, if there's some scarring on skin level, we just widen it up at the same time. We found when we did our our previous study looking at this widening procedure, the Heineken Maculitz anaplasty, that we didn't get any wound infections, even though those patients weren't diverted and hadn't had a bowel prep. So we felt really comfortable doing that procedure at the same time as the colostomy closure. So that's what I do now. I think families are very grateful that they're not having to do dilation. 
there are some kids who have you know more minor anorectal malformations who have done dilations preoperatively and some of those families will go well we've done dilations for a couple of months child's tolerating them fine we'd rather not have another anesthetic because they're not having a colostomy closure so they'll just carry on with the post-op dilations for a couple of months instead um, and that's fine i mean i think it's it's really up to mums and dads but um the vast majority in my experience have opted to avoid the dilations. And so far we've been very comfortable with how the patients are doing. At what age would they have the, um, the general anesthetic to have the, the procedure after the colostomy closure? Like how, what's the time length? Okay, so generally we would do it at the same procedure as the colostomy closure. I see. So, yeah. so they get their piece of, and then about six to eight weeks after the PSOB, they would come in and have a colostomy closure. And at that time, if there's narrowing at skin level, we'll just do it at the same time. It adds like probably 15 minutes to the procedure. Oh. Um, and then if they, the, the average time to sort of scarring down, we found in our redo patients was about three months. So about 12 weeks. So in anyone who gets a redo, we tend to see them back at about three months just to check that that's okay. Because about 25 to 30% of patients will need something done in that group, but there's a bit more scarring in the redo group. And so we've kind of felt that if we get eight weeks out in the primary patients, that by then they're either going to be good or they're going to need something done. And so that's why we've used that as about the time frame that makes sense. So I think the goal here is this is a significant source of stress. We asked the question, do you really need to do it? Or is it just because that's what we were always told we had to do? Yes. From the data we have, and we, we acknowledge it's a small trial, it's only 50 kids, but from the data we have in conjunction with our you know, hundreds of patients that have had redos and our several patients we've managed, it seems safe to just offer what the parents want. Um, I know there's an appetite to do a bigger trial, and I've been talking with some folks in Europe and England who are wanting to set up an international trial to look at this. I did say to them it's going to be very hard to convince me to be involved in a trial because I don't know that I can tell parents that they have to do dilations if they get randomized to dilations, you know, if I've already moved away from that in my practice. So I don't know if I will be able to be involved in the trial, but we'll see clearly something which has become very topical and I think people are trying are now listening to families and going yeah these are a problem and we need to look at them I suppose the follow the obvious follow-up question is that because there'll be people from all around the world listening to this podcast is how many other uh, surgeons or centers sort of like is there anyone else doing the same thing at the moment yeah so I know um, I know that there are multiple people that are. So there are definitely some groups in Europe and the UK that, that are not doing dilations. The reason we did the trial was that we felt like we should actually test it before we just changed practice, right? Because the, the standard of care had been dilations. And we felt as an academic center, if we were going to change practice, it should be on the basis of some scientific data to show that it was safe to do that rather than just, okay, we're going to try without. 
And so that's why we did a trial. But there are some surgeons. I know uh, Jack Lange in Toronto doesn't do routine dilations. He sees patients back in his clinic once a week and checks them and makes sure with dilations that they're okay. And there are various folks in the UK that do something similar. And then here in the States, uh, we offer that. And then Dr. Levity now works in, in, in Washington, offers that as well. Um, and I don't know if there's been any other centers in the US that have picked it up. We have spoken about it at PCP, PLC level, and there are some other groups wanting to maybe look into doing it as a study. But you know, my perception is based on the trial we did and our experience with the the redo patients that the combination of either dilations or not dilations with having this um, catch save procedure to, to deal with the scar tissue is very safe and so i think it's reasonable that's that's great news um and while we're touching on redos it's how how many percentage of uh patients would you see would be you do a redo surgery because there's many, many instances where kids have had their surgery and by, for some reason, it just hasn't worked and down the track, they need to get a redo. So I think I've always got to be careful in the context I work in because I'm working in a referral center. And so, you know, you've always got to remember that you don't know what the denominator is. So, you know, I may see a lot of kids who need redos, but I think the vast majority of patients out there who get a piece of probably get a piece of that doesn't need a redo. Yeah. So yeah. the exact number of, you know, what percent of kids who get a anorectal malformation repair need a redo is, is difficult to know, to be completely honest. I, I, I think there are a number of reasons why one might need a redo. And I think if you unpack that a little bit, it probably makes more sense. So there are patients who have, you know, a stricture or a narrowing after their repair caused by you know scar tissue or lack of blood supply or infection or something like that. And, and the opening is just too small. And I think there it's not controversial at all. I mean, you need to fix that so that the patient is able to stool. You can also get patients who you know, can have a, a prolapse, which is really significant. We're not talking just a little mucosal prolapse. We're talking a prolapse where you know, the rectum is not attached to their pelvic floor. And so when they stool, the, you know, the whole pelvis kind of de descends and the rectum descends. And those patients really benefit from having their rectum reattached to their pelvic floor and reconstructed, which then allows them to deal with that. So I think in those situations, it's, it's fairly obvious that it, you know, redo surgery needs to happen. And in our series, we, we looked at about 150 kids um, over uh, about a four-year period that we did redos on. And um, the indications for redo, you know, about 35% were for stricture and about 10% were for prolapse. So that kind of takes care of nearly half the kids. The others were really done for um, mislocation. So the repair was done, but, you know, wasn't done in a way where the reconstruction within the sphincters and the pelvic floor was um, where it could have been uh, or perfectly within the muscles. And so, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about which patient should be offered a reoperation for mislocation. And, you know, some of the older stuff, 
that was written was really, well, only patients who've got a really good prognosis should be offered a reoperation. Um, one of the problems we have is that, you know, it's hard to define who's got the perfect prognosis because the data is a little lacking, but we have some. So we, uh, we looked at that and decided that if patients, um, you know, didn't have like significant spinal abnormalities, obviously some kids, you know, have a myelomeningocele or something like that. And the chances that they would be able to be continent would be, we would think limited. So in kids who didn't have an obvious, like, you're never going to be continent kind of idea. We, we, we offered reoperations. And it was interesting to see because of the patients with a, you know, with a good a malformation with theoretically good prognosis, so like a vestibular fistula or a perineal fistula or a lower rectourethral fistula, like a bulbar fistula. If we offered those patients a redo, and we did the redo, and then a year out, we checked where they were. Of the kids that made it onto laxatives, and about half the patients made it onto laxatives within the first year of their redo, 75% of them were continent. That's a great result, isn't it? And, and if you think that all of those patients were incontinent beforehand, mm. and, and so for continents in all the studies we use, we use Rome criteria, which means any stool out, whether that's a smear or a smudge or a real poop uh, or stool, you know, more than once a week would classify as, as, as soiling. So we have pretty strict criteria for what counts. And we'll get into why I think that makes sense just now. But, and so we do think that offering redos is helpful in patients. Now, in the patients who had slightly more guarded prognosis, we still found, you know, that about 20% of them were able to um, become continent, even though we thought, well, they probably wouldn't have the best prognosis. So I think from that perspective, I think we should get the anatomy right. Um, I think there's also prospects on the horizon of using sort of more... Um, more sort of modern technology uh, and we have you know some ideas on that but of, of trying to re-teach re, re the pelvic floor and other things uh, we do a lot of pelvic floor physiotherapy here now that we maybe didn't in the past and we're finding benefits of that not only in Hirschsprungs and functional constipation kids but also in anorexia malformation kids so I think getting the anatomy right makes a lot of sense then the other question people always ask is okay, well, but at what cost, right? And I'm not talking financial cost. I mean, obviously financial cost is important to, to think about, but if you're going to offer someone a re-operation, you've got to think about, okay, but what are the risks of that surgery? Because you're offering someone a re-operation in order to try and get to better continence or get rid of their stricture or something. But, you know, what are the complications? And fortunately, we found the complication rates to be pretty low. So, uh, we never we ne we don't do a stoma at the time of the redos, so patients stay in hospital for about five to seven days afterwards. So we can check the wounds are healing well. We keep them on clear fluids while they while they're healing, so that they don't make any formed stool. And we found a a dehiscence at the perineum level of four percent, and we had one patient that you know out of one hundred and fifty five or something where we had to put a stoma in post-op, which allowed things to heal, and then we could close the stoma again. Okay. So, you know, that's that's the cost. 4% is, 
infection rates, one kid out of 150 that needed a stoma. So in general, we think the benefits of being able to get people hopefully to continence or better continence, even if they don't get to continence, is there. And we also looked at quality of life. So we used PeteSQL. We looked at quality of life and we were able to show improved quality of life in the group. And that mirrors what we found in other studies where if you get patients continent, their quality of life improves. So, so that's, that, that's why we think there's some benefit to doing reoperations. Just quite a quick question on that. The kids would be a bit older too when they had the redos. How do they cope like mentally and all that? Because I suppose when they're young, they babies, they don't understand what's happened. But when they're a little bit older, does that, do you have many issues from that part, side of things? No, I mean, I think that's a great point, Greg. So we, um, we definitely work with child life to help them through the process. I mean, we have definitely seen kids who have had a lot of dilations, especially the kids with strictures, where they have, there is plenty of medical trauma. I mean, we, we actually, interestingly, operated on a child last week who needed a redo, who'd had five previous surgeries, and he had a lot of strictures. And, you know, a lot of people with that sort of story and so he um, saw psychology in clinic beforehand and the psychologist saw him you know, multiple times while he was in hospital. And I'll say by the end of his stay, he was you know, much calmer uh, and he benefited a lot from the psychology and child life and other things that, that, that we put around him because he was clearly, I would say, suffering from medical trauma. The patients with mislocation, I don't find to have as much background of dilations and reoperations, and so they tend to come in with a little less medical trauma but we always have those facilities available to them because I think that's really helpful as far as pain goes we uh, we have actually not found the pain control after this operation to be too bad I mean we find the first 48 hours or so is a reasonable amount of pain uh, and we usually manage that with a combination of anti-inflammatories, um, IV paracetamol, and, and, and some narcotic, although we try and limit narcotic use as much as we can. But post, after post-op day two, patients are pretty comfortable uh, and we keep them here for five or six days. So we have a pretty good feel for how they feel. And it is interesting when you talk to the older patients that you do a, a redo on for mislocation. I've had the experience multiple times where children will say they can't feel anything before surgery. And even in the post-op period before they go home, they say to me, I can feel now when stool's coming down more than I could feel before. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's fascinating. And it, it, it fits in with the fact that, you know, they can be a bit of continence. And I think if we think about how patients with anorectal malformations develop continence, right? We know they don't have a normal anal canal in most cases. So being able to feel, you know, solid liquid and gas like other people can is difficult. I can vouch for that. Yeah. But but if but if they still have their rectal reservoir uh, and they have their anus put in a good spot, they can feel something in, in cases where they've got, you know, good spine, good nerves, good muscles. And we have learned over time that a lot of it is about keeping the rectum empty through the day yep. because that way when the rectum does get stool in it, they actually become more aware of that. And so that's why some of our kids 
we'll do a redo one and we may offer them like a Malone at the same time or, or a Secostomy at the same time in order to kind of keep them really clean for about a year afterwards so they can become very sensitized to what it feels like when they have stool in their rectum. And we find that kids are actually more successful potty training with a bridge of enemas. But now obviously if they've had a really difficult time with dilations and a bunch of other stuff, many of them won't tolerate rectal enemas. I mean, plenty do, but if they don't, then we'll do an, a Malone or secostomy at the time of the redo, get them clean with enemas, and then bring them back for you know bowel management the following year or six months, at least six months. I like to give them six months. And then many of them, as we showed, 75% were able to potty train. So I'd like to talk about the Malones shortly, but one question that seems to be very common in the um, in the community at the moment for parents is to whether to decide to keep the stoma and not go down the PSAR route. Can you just give me your thoughts on that? It happens occasionally, not often, but it's something that does get raised. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you definitely do come into that situation and I've come into that situation a few times myself where we see a patient who has an anorectal malformation, they get a colostomy as a baby, and then the family go, you know, we really don't, don't necessarily want to close the colostomy. And then I think it's important just to think about that situation and to speak about that situation. Uh, I think there are some patients in which keeping a colostomy is not an unreasonable thing to do. I mean, we see patients who have significant spinal problems like a myelomeningocele situation where the child is not going to be able to ambulate. So they're going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. And I think in that situation, it's not unreasonable to think about a stoma as a way to empty the stool. You know, some people say to me, well, okay, if you're in a wheelchair, then you could also do them alone and sit on the toilet and pass stool that way. And I think that's true, except if you don't have any sensation of your buttocks, because we've definitely seen patients who don't have buttock sensation, who develop really nasty pressure sores from sitting on toilets for long periods of time doing Malone flushes. So I think in that particular situation, it's not unreasonable to have the conversation about the stoma. The one thing that I will say is that especially in girls with cloacas or cloacal malformations or boys with recto-urethral fistulas, so connection between the rectum and the urinary system, if you don't take down that connection, you're basically keeping the rectum in contact with the urinary system. We know that the, the, the rectum, even when they don't have poop going through it, is usually colonized with bacteria. And so what you're doing is you're basically connecting the bladder to a reservoir with bacteria in it. And that's problematic because up to 50% of kids with anorexal malformations have reflux. And we're not talking about reflux in their stomach. We're talking about reflux from the bladder up into the kidneys. So what you're doing then is you're keeping a connection between the rectum and the kidneys in up to half of your patients. And so that's, we think, problematic. So I would say there are a few patients, and we don't do this often, where we would just go in and divide the connection between the rectum and the urinary system, but not necessarily 
form the anus, just leave the rectum and the pelvis with a mucous fistula, if we felt that this child had extremely limited ability to sit on a toilet or you know, ever ambulate. Yeah. That's a very, very tiny proportion of the kids with anorectal malformations. So for the children with anorectal malformations who have the ability to walk normally and have normal buttock sensation, we tend to advocate for doing the PSAB. And even if they can't have full continence, maybe they have a very complex malformation and a tethered cord and that sort of thing, we still think from a quality of life perspective, those patients are probably better off based on the data we have to have a PSAB. And even if they have an anti-malone or a sacostomy or something to do flushes with, and we can get them clean, which we can in most patients. And I think we've shown that with the bowel management stuff we've done, that those patients do well. Because the nice thing is they're not going to school with a stoma bag. You know, these kids are now going to school you know, with having had a PSAB, they've got them alone, or a sacostomy button. But largely they can do what their mates are doing, right? So they can integrate with their peer group, they can, you know, play with their friends, they can swim in the pool. Um, now, you can swim with a stoma, but it's pretty obvious to your peer group that you have a colostomy if you have a colostomy. And I'm not anti-colostomies. We're just trying to get kids to integrate as much as possible with their peer group. And so that's what I usually talk to families about is like, let's think about integration with peer group and how that works when kids go to school. But it's reasonable to do a staged approach if families feel very uncomfortable. It just means more surgery. And I'm always of the opinion that if we can limit the amount of surgery, that's that's good. But I do feel uncomfortable with leaving rectums attached to bladders, essentially, in children with anorectal malformations who, who are often refluxing into their kidneys, which then can lead to UTIs and long-term kidney damage, which then has other implications, you know, like high blood pressure, renal failure, and all those things. And that does happen in our patients. So I think it warrants a really thoughtful discussion between the surgeon or the care team, doctors, and the family to try and understand what their concerns are. And I think the other thing is you need to have a really honest conversation about what it looks like at age one, at age three, at age five, at age 10. And I think there's other advantages of connecting families, right? So you guys have great communities online. Yes. Uh, and, and we try and do similar sorts of things in, in our practice where we connect, you know, if there's a family that's very hesitant, we'll connect them with a, a family who has gone through all this and say like, what did it really feel like? And let them answer their questions and stuff like that. Now, one, one wonders how much we need that these days with all the online communities that are available. But um, I think trying to get parents a realistic impression of what it looks like is probably helpful to help their decision-making rather than just say, this is what you need to do. And I say you need to do it. I mean, that, obviously those days are fortunately behind us. So I think really just trying to give people a realistic impression of what it feels like and what it looks like is probably the most useful. That that's really important. No, that's great information, Richard. I really appreciate it because you've really answered a lot of questions. I'm sure people, parents, would like answered in a layman's terms, as I keep on mentioning. Now, the next one I'd like to talk about is the Malone, and there's a discussion that gets had about what is 
I'm not the ideal age to mow own or what what's your process of discussing parent with parents when it gets to the stage of having Malone or an ace? So again, I, you know, I, I think with all of these things, it's a lot of it's about understanding what each family's needs are. You know, uh, I think the needs of a family with a child who is being homeschooled with mum at home or dad at home versus the child where, you know, both parents are working and the child's in daycare and the daycare needs children clean at age three, age four, which is often the case here in the US, those are two very different families. And so I think deciding what's best has to be seen in the context of the family unit and what that family needs, right? Because I think, you know, sort of a paternalistic approach of I do whatever at whatever stage is probably relatively unhelpful. So I think as a minimum, any child who's going to get an anti-grade NMO option should be able to sit on a toilet for at least, or, or a party or something like that, for at least 30 minutes. You know, we're obviously in the age of technology, which really helps. So kids are easier to get to sit on a toilet because they can use iPads uh, and other devices. I don't get paid any royalties by Apple. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I think the one thing you've got to be a little careful of, and we've experienced this quite a few times, is parents will say, oh, the flush is taking longer and longer and longer. And actually, the kid's just enjoying sitting on the toilet with the iPad. And so sometimes you have to actually give them iPad time after they've been on the toilet for their flush. But in principle, you want children to be able to sit on a toilet to do their flush. There are a few exceptions, but I would say that's the case. And so that's usually about age three, three and a half, heading towards four, that they can actually do that. And I think that that would be my my sort of minimum for doing uh, doing some sort of integrate option. I would say we much more commonly do it around age five before kids go to kindergarten. Right. Uh, but there are some groups where you know families need kids clean for daycare. Both mom and dad are working, and you know the daycare won't take them unless they're out of out of diapers or nappies, and so they stuck really. And as we know, there's some kids that just don't tolerate rectal enemas at all. That, that was really going to be my next question about the ones that that just can't deal with it, and yeah. parents, but you know, just don't they're out of answers. And some people will go, well, unless you do rectal enemas for six months or a year first, I won't offer them alone. I I don't generally have that approach because I feel like the kids that tolerate rectal enemas just fine, and uh, and 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 I think. Perhaps if we do less dilations in babies, we'll have more patients tolerating rectal enemas. I don't know if those are directly connected, but we'll have to wait and see about that. But if they can't tolerate rectal enemas or it's causing like serious stress in the family, then I, you know, I think the thing you've got to be reasonable and go, okay, well, we, we need to get this child clean because they got to get to school or they got to get to daycare. And rectal enemas are causing significant distress so what's the next option? And the next option would be an integrate enema option. And, and we found that, you know, Secostomy and Malone work exactly the same as far as bowel management goes. So again, then people say, well, what do you do? Do you do Malone or Secostomy? And, and again, I think it depends. And I don't want to sound like a politician by saying it depends to everything. But I think this is where personalized healthcare comes from. You, you kind of got to go fix, you got to have your toolbox of the of the things you can do and then fit the right patient to the right procedure really. But 
So there are some kids who won't tolerate being cathed. So we have kids with um, you know, behavioral things, autism, that kind of thing. They won't tolerate being cathed. We also have patients who may have significant urological problems and we wanna keep their appendix for possibly needing to do a metrophenoff when they get older, because we know that doing a metrophenoff with an appendix has much better outcomes than doing a metrophenoff with, with bowel or something else. So we always try, so we don't use the appendix unless urology say we don't, we're never gonna to need to do a metrophenoff here because all the patients here get seen by both us and urology. And so there'll be, might be a kid who's say five, who's got to get to kindy, but we're not ready yet to decide on a metrophenoff. So then we'll do a, we'll do a secostomy and we actually did this on Monday. We'll leave the appendix alone and then you know, get the kid clean for school, can get to school, do his thing or her thing. And then, you know, when they're a little bigger, urology go, okay, we don't need the metrophenoff anymore. We can say to the mom and dad then, okay, do you want to leave the secostomy? Or if you want to get to a stage where the child's now old enough to cath their own Malone, we can convert the secostomy to a Malone. Or we can just leave them with a secostomy. And it's less crucial for us because we, we, we were able to demonstrate here that the outcomes of Malone and near Malone in our, group, in our patients is the same. So if the urologists need to use the appendix for, for urology, that's fine. We'll just do a near Malone instead. And they, we have found they do just as well in terms of complications and things. So you know, I think the key point is anti-grade enemas are very useful I think the other reason I am an advocate for them in the slightly older child, age you know, seven or eight, is that they do allow children to get their autonomy back, you know, get mums and dads out of the bathroom. A bit because, of independence. Yeah, and I think that's really important psychologically, you know, like to actually get their autonomy and their body back uh, and not have other people involved. Because you know, some, you know, a lot of our kids who now age, you know, six is early, but seven and eight are able to cat their own Malone, hook everything up. Mom might make up the mixture for them or dad, but they can kind of do their thing in the restroom, take their tube out, put their plug back in if they need the plug still, wipe their bottom and kind of be a regular seven or eight-year-old kid again. And, and I think that's really important we do less peristine here in the US because it's hard to get approval for compared to the chap, the, the, my colleagues in Europe. But when we spoke about peristine with, with the European folks and you were in Austria uh, with us when we were at that meeting, it appeared only about 30% of the kids on peristine were getting independence. And so I, I usually chat to folks about that when we're talking about Malone's, especially when the kids are a little bit older. You know, think about what we're trying to achieve and the one benefit of the integrate is that you do get a lot of kids independent. Yep. Um, so I think that's a, that's a thing to think about um, because I think from a overall psychological developmental perspective, which is obviously a huge part of what we do, although it's not necessarily, you know, where you put the stitches in <laughs> it's um, I think it's big to be able to give kids the independence back. So, and the other thing, Greg, like, you know, and again, I'm probably sounding like a politician, but I, I, I'm a lot less dogmatic about, you know, are you a laxative patient or are you a 
are you a, a, an enema patient? Then perhaps some are. That was because, going to be my next question about laxatives. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we'll do that now. I, I just wanted to say, like, even patients that potty train successfully that have previously had them alone, we find most of our patients want to keep them alone. Right. And the reason they want to do that is because there are times, and you'll know this, and obviously all your readers will, there are times when you feel more confident having an enema, and there are times when you feel a bit more relaxed about doing laxatives. And lots of our students say, like, during exam week, they're eating or drinking a ton of coffee and they can't manage on their laxatives, so they'll do enemas. Or they're going to play a soccer match or a rugby match or not rugby here, but whatever. Um, and, they, and, they need to do, and they need to do enemas for that. And, you know, when they get older, if they're going out for dinner or whatever, they might want to do that. So, you know, we're not as dogmatic as some. Like, I, I usually say to parents, I think your kid's got a reasonable prognosis. I think the, the integrate option might buy us a bridge for a couple of years until we get to able to con be continent. And then, you know, have it as an add a, as a, as a bridge or, or, or an extra thing that, that offers you some more independence as things get older. And the nice thing about a Malone is you don't have to take a Malone down. If you don't want to use it anymore, you just stop using it. And in 96% of patients, it just closes up on its own. Oh, yeah. It's there. And if you ever need to reaccess it, you can do a little minor day case procedure and open it up again. So I think it's it's a great tool to have in the right patient. And and the risks of the surgery are pretty low. So I, th I think it's a reasonable option. Okay. Now, with, with the laxatives, in regard to anorectal malformation uh, patients. So in general terms... I mean, to give kids the best chance or patients, I shouldn't say kids because you've got lots of non-kids on your, on your group, but yeah. to give patients, sorry, <laughs> occupational hazard. Um, <laughs> That's okay. But to give patients the best chance of being continent, we think in anorectal malformations, you need to do a couple of things. You need to empty the rectum on a regular basis that allows the rectal sensation to be there so patients can feel when they need to go to the loo. And two, you need to have the stool of sufficient bulk in order for the patients to develop awareness, right? Most patients with anorectal malformations tell me um, that if they have diarrhea or liquid stool, it's very, very hard for them to control it. I can do that. Yeah, and if the stools, and I'm sure you've had that experience, and when the stool's more bulked, it's much more easy to, to manage. And so the problem with Murlax or any other stool softeners is that's what they do. They make the stool soft. So we prefer trying to do sort of a stimulant laxative, which essentially the two common ones we use are either Senna-based laxative or Bisacodal or Dulcolax-based laxatives both of which are stimulants to the colon that push the stool out. And then that allows you to bulk the stool with fiber. And we use um, water-soluble uh, predominant fiber, but we often add balance to that fiber. But by using the fiber, you can bulk the stool up. And using the stimulants, you can push the stool out. So you empty the rectum, which helps with sensation. And you bulk the stool, which helps with sensation for the muscles and the rectum. And that's how I think we largely portray. The other piece, which I think one mustn't underestimate, is if you get on a good dose of stimulant laxative that kind of is working for you, 
there's an element of predictability that generally comes with stooling patterns. So most kids and patients, once they're on a good dose of say Senna, will be able to predictably go to the toilet sort of eight to 12 hours after they, uh, they take their medicines. So I, I usually say to families that we, we really cheat when we talk about potty training for kids with ARM, because what we do is in like the year before they want to potty train, we work really hard to set up a routine. So we give the center at say, you know, say moms and dads are both working. So we give the center early in the morning before the kid goes to daycare and then, or, or nanny or whatever. Yep. And then um, generally eight to 12 hours after that. So four or five o'clock in the afternoon when mom and dad are back from work, the child's generally going to be passing stool then. That allows you to cheat, right? Because that's you give the kid a snack. So yep. we know that gets the colon going. And then you get them to sit on the toilet. Well, why don't you just sit and see? Just have a look and see if it works. And then surprisingly, they start going because you've kind of set them up that way. And you can't do that with, with art stimulant laxatives. Yeah. And so then if you develop a routine, it becomes much more easy for families to get children potty trained that way. Now, is that real potty training? I mean, some people will criticize me and say that's not real potty training. I mean, I don't really care, to be honest. You know, it's, it works in a good deal of patients. And I think it gives parents more confidence if they know there's a routine than if stooling's just happening at, you know, all ra random times. And I think patients, as they get older, sort of my older teenagers and stuff who, who we look after, will tell me that the routine is everything. And being able to, like, have confidence that like, I'm not gonna to need to go to the toilet at school or at work because I know I've given my medicine at this time. And so I'm gonna go when I get home is huge because a lot of people have issues with using public restrooms and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. I found, I found it's all about the planning. Yeah. Now, just one thing, wound care, which is a massive thing for younger parents when they have their stomas and but when they have the uh when the anus starts to work you know they get a lot of mucus and all that what's your advice regarding the care for the skin yeah so i think um we we've been spoiled more latterly because i think there's some really good um, skincare products on the market and again i don't get paid by anyone but um you know cavalon advance is a really nice your cyanoacrylate sort of based product, so like super glue based product, which can kind of be completely waterproof on the skin. Marathon's another one. And I think in the case without stomas who haven't had skin exposure, we're pretty aggressive with working with our stomal therapists and you know, giving parents a whole sort of toolbox of things to use to try and prevent skin breakdown. Because once you've had skin breakdown, it's very difficult to manage. So that often happens sort of time of colostomy closure where you're getting a nice stool on. Now, after the piece of, you do get mucus. We generally have a very sort of non-wiping approach. We use a, a, you know, a little foam cleanser, which bubbles up and helps to get uh, the skin clean without having to wipe vigorously because we don't want to wipe vigorously in the acute post-op period after a PSOP because that can cause you know, uh, injuries to the repair. So we do generally have a non-wipe approach for the first month after PSOP. Rinse the, the stool away if there's no stoma or if there's a stoma, rinse the mucus away. 
And we found that's really helped with the dehiscence rates. I mean, for our primary patients, dehiscence rates around 2%. Redos, it's about 4 and And I think a lot of that comes from sort of really good nursing care and really educating mums and dads when they're in the hospital. We're very lucky we have, you know, four stomal therapists we work with who are amazing women and I think add a ton to care. And then, you know, with regard to the wounds, I think a lot of it's just keeping them clean and dry. So we don't use much in the way of dressings. I think dressings are miserable to take off most of the time. So the most I ever use is Steri-Strips and those just flake off in the bath. So, but we don't use dressings at, at all. But I think skincare, uh, giving parents options, but not every patient's the same and just being pretty aggressive to make sure we don't get skin loss up front. Because once you do, you know, then it's really hard You're working with you know, Maalox and, uh, and cornstarch and all those things to try and get things to stick again, which I think can be really hard. I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Any information that we get from you is definitely a bonus, I can tell you. <laughs> so can you just talk about the PCPRC, which I know is a very important uh, collection of surgeons from around the world? Yeah, so... Um, you know, we we have a community of, of healthcare providers that have kind of gotten to know, know each other over the years. And we felt that um, it would be very helpful to have a group of people working together to try and take care of these kids and their families and obviously the adults as they get older. And so um, in 2016, we started a group of hospitals that were just three hospitals to start with, Seattle Children's Nationwide and Salt Lake City. And from there it grew and we now have you know, 16 or so um, centers in the US that are all collecting data together. We are also wanting to engage with centers outside of the US. Some of the data sharing stuff is tricky with Europe and the UK. Um, we've had some discussions with Sebastian in Melbourne and a few other folks. And I'm hoping in the next couple of years, we get some international centers also recruiting data. But basically we're all collecting the same information on our patients. And, and, and we've been able to produce, you know, some, some re good research now over the last couple of years, having taken a few years to set up the network. And I think largely, you know, rather come up with a, a multi-center way of doing things, right? Because Obviously, we have a few centers like the one I'm fortunate to work in, which are very highly specialized. I mean, there's 95% of what I do is colorectal. And so, you know, we have the whole team to take care of patients. But, you know, you can't take care of every patient in the world in a center like that. It would be great, but you can't. So we also need to kind of work out what's the standard of care that's reasonable across a diverse platform of, teams and so you know we have bigger teams and we have smaller teams all in pcplc together and so i think that allows us to get a much more balanced view of what what's reasonable and what outcomes should be expected for patients with anorectal malformations and i i hope well a couple of things number one we hope that over time we can establish a standard of care like this is what your expectation should be if you're going somewhere where there's a reasonable volume of care. And I think we're very well on the way to establishing that. And I, and I think the other thing is, 
it allows us with a big group of patients um, to really answer some of the questions that we really want to answer. You know, even in a place like Nationwide, where we have, you know, we have like, I know about 1300 ARM patients that we follow. So it's a, a big group of patients. PLC has only been going for a couple of years and already has, you know, much more patients than that. So over time, you know, we will have, I don't know, four or 5,000 ARM patients under follow-up that we will then really be able to answer a lot of the questions that we want to answer. So, yeah, I think those are the benefits. And then I think the other thing is what we really want to make sure we do is continue along the lines of what we spoke about, which is how do we work out what we're going to investigate? Yes. And I think the key to that is on trying to answer the questions that are important to patients and families. So, you know, we've had several discussions about setting up interactions with various groups, your group, one in 5,000 and others to collaborate on what questions we need to ask because, and, and COVID got in the way of some of the things we had set up last year. So we need to revisit that probably uh, in second half of this year, but really try and, and identify what are the key areas of concern and then how do we investigate those things? How do we answer those questions? And what's meaningful, right? So to get back to one thing we spoke about earlier, when we did our bowel management study, we were able, so we defined conten, uh, continence like we discussed before, more than one X, more than one anything per week. And when I looked at the outcomes, we found that the patients that we were able to develop continence on or get clean had a really significant improvement in their quality of life. And wow. the patients that we weren't, because we didn't win with everybody, had no improvement in their quality. Yep. And so I think we were able to show in that study that we picked the right thing to use as our guide. So we wanted to know one year out from treatment, how many patients were clean or continent, because that is the thing that affects quality of life more than anything else. And so there were other things we could look at. But to me, that was the key because that's what families have told us was important to them. Like, can my child be continent or clean? And how does it affect their quality of life? I mean, those are the primary questions the patients told Jonathan and I. So those were what we investigated. And I think we have to continue to do that, not just in our various individual centers. And, you know, we, we work a lot anyway together. I mean, Sebastian and I do stuff together. Lots of us do stuff together. But but also in collaborative groups like the PCPLC, we've got to continue to investigate and answer the things that are important, not just to us, but also to families. So I think for physicians, a lot of the work we're doing is around infection rates, stricture rates, dehiscence rates, all that kind of stuff. So see if we can learn from each other how we can get the outcomes better. That, that's one piece. And I think that's an important piece. We call that quality data. And I think that's really important that we do that because we need to try and get the surgical outcomes, the best possible result with the least possible cost, if you like. I just want to think, I just think one very important part of that is a consistency of language and the medical terms, et cetera, that, you, that the clinicians are using because there's still a lot of... Um, parents have 
they, they classify their child as high, medium or low IA, which is like the 10, 15, 20 years ago medical terms, aren't they? 1984, Greg. Yes, that's right. But I mean, it was a good book by George Orwell, but it's also the same year that um, the wing spread classification was introduced, which is the high, intermediate, and low. Yep. And so it's pretty outdated now. And I suppose the pediatric colorectal surgeons that might only have one IARM patient every 12, two years, they probably still think that the high, medium, and low is the way to go because they don't understand the new classification. And that's where it can cause conflict when people are saying, well, hang on, where do I fit in? <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But so, so as you say, continuity of language is really important. And, and I think without that, it becomes really difficult to compare apples with apples. And, and I think a lot of times uh, you said, you said earlier, which I think is a great point that it's, that, you know, that everything's about the planning. And I think, giving people some sort of idea of what they're in for, it's very helpful. Yes. Um, I think you've got to be honest and say, we, we can't be 100% sure, but this is where we think we're going. And these are the steps that we probably need to deal with to get there and kind of be very considerate in those discussions about like what you go through. And, and I, you know, obviously the other piece, which doesn't need to be overstated, but I mean, most kids who have an anorectal malformation, it's not diagnosed antenatally, right? Yeah. So the whole process is traumatic and a shock because now a baby's born and there's a completely unexpected finding of something which in most people, they've never even heard of it before, right? Yeah. They, they didn't even know this could happen. So that's traumatic. And then you hear, oh, there might be a spinal thing and oh, there might be a heart thing. And, and then they most families, when you talk to them afterwards, are pretty overwhelmed. And then they get a bit of bunch of medical information. And then it's like, how do I process this? And many times you'll see patients and they'll say that they really recall very little of what went on when the baby was small. It was kind of a complete blur. And then afterwards, now they're seeing a gastroenterologist or, or the, one of the benefits of building sort of groups of people that take care of these kids a lot is just the way they speak, the language that we're going to look after you for a longer period of time. You have a medical home, you, you know, you, we'll arrange the psychologists to be involved. You, you'll see the urologist, like just kind of giving people the resources that they need in an organized way, I think is a lot of the benefit, right? More so than just like, oh, well, you have to come here because otherwise you won't get a good operation. I mean, I think sometimes... Yeah, the whole, holistic approach to that covers everything, isn't it? Because there's so much to deal with. Exactly. There's a ton to deal with. And, and in addition to that, like there's, there's a lot of stuff that comes with it. Like, you know, the, what's the burden on, on other siblings of, you know, parents having to do so much care and... Relationships. The relationships and... How does that affect things? And, and, and can, do we talk honestly about that? And do we, do we offer parents and resources on how to manage that with you know, other siblings and all that kind of stuff? And if you're in a general clinic where, as you say, this happens once or twice a year, you, people's heads are not going to go to all that stuff because they're not doing that for their 12 hernia patients they saw before you in clinic. 
and and I, you know, we've all worked in less specialized environments through our careers, and it's just like that. Whereas if you put all the patients together, even in Cape Town, where we had less resources than we have in Columbus, once we put all the patients into one clinic, we were able to find more resources, better facilities, and all the things, and that allowed you know significant improvement in care. So I think listening to people, hearing what's important and trying to put resources around them, however many resources you have, every context is different, but just trying to do as much as you can to do that, I think is a lot of the battle in you know, helping families with these sorts of issues. Oh, look, there's absolutely no doubt that one of the great things about modern technology with the social media and the groups and parents have come together and can help each other, but now it's the clinicians are all coming together as well, which I don't think has always necessarily been the case in past. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Richard, I can't thank you enough, but you've given us so much of your time and the information that you've conveyed, I'm sure will be so incredibly informative to so many parents and kids and adults even out in their, in our community and, I can't thank you enough for being a part of our uh, one in 5,000 rare and resilient podcast. Oh, Greg, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, I just am so grateful for you for setting this up. Um, I think what you guys are doing with your podcast is phenomenal and um, really enjoyed listening to them. And, uh, you know, would love to be a part of it again in the future if, if the need arose, but thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. I can tell you. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Of course.